welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the only podcast that needs to jump right in immediately because one of the hosts is up way past her bedtime (laughs) and we need to get to this material right away. I am your host, Lauren Burke, Team Bronte, but Team Alcott for the moment. And I'm your host, Hannah Chapman, Team Austin, Team Alcott, and very sleepy. (laughs) (laughs) Let's do it. Let's do it. There's so much to do. So as you guys know, we're doing for the month of May, Louisa May Alcott, and we've picked eight cousins for our read-along novel. This episode, we're going to be discussing chapters one to eight. So if you are planning on reading this book with us, this is your warning. Pause it here, run away to your bedroom, sit on your bed, read the first eight chapters, come back, unpause it, listen to the episode. Okay, if you're not going to read it, Sit back and let us talk about this book you haven't read before or have read before a long time ago. It's up to you. But before we get into the book, we have a little interview prepared for you, a little more background information about the life and times and works of Louisa May Alcott from a real expert and not from Lauren or I. Uh, Lauren was discussing Louisa May with Anne Boyd Rhee. So... Anne is a professor of English at the University of New Orleans. Lucky gal, gets to live in New Orleans. Um, She's a member of the advisory board of the Louisa May Alcott Society. She has written about Alcott in two books, uh, Writing for Immortality, Women and the Emergence of High Literary Culture in America, and her new book, which is coming out in August, which we will talk about in August, <laughs> which is Meg, Joe, Beth, Amy, The Story of Little Women and Why It Still Matters. She has also edited a new deluxe edition of Little Women for Penguin Classics. And that will also be coming out in August. And I cannot wait to read it. Oh, I need that. Um, it's, it sounds really good. We talk a little bit about it. Um, but yeah, so future plans with Anne. But right now, let's just dive in and get to know Louisa a little bit more. They also like Penguin, when they release a new book, a beautiful cover. Can we just... Yes. Remember the Gillian Tamaki embroidered Emma? Hello. Yes. Okay. Now, um, I wanted to start talking to you today, uh, like to kind of get into the the Alcots by talking about their financial situation. Yeah, I thought that was so interesting that that's where you wanted to start. It's a great place to start because that, I think, is sort of at the heart of who they really were Mm -hmm. um, that never got into the books and was kind of, you know, hidden from people as much as possible. Because I think in order to understand their their very dire financial situation at times. We have to understand her father and he's very difficult not to crack, but he's Bronson Alcott was an idealist, um, Mm -hmm. philosopher, a spiritualist or a spiritual person, a spiritual seeker. Let's call him. I think I call him a rather um, in my book. I think I call him a religious radical because he, he really was out there in terms of his views, religion, spirituality, and, and God, um, he really saw Jesus as somebody who was not this, you know, unreachable divine figure, but somebody who could be a model for all of us here on earth now. So he mm-hmm. expected himself, his family members, the people around him to uh, strive to be as Christ-like as possible. And as we know, of course, Jesus um, 
you know, eschewed all sort of um, worldly goods, right? And he was very charitable. He gave away everything. He didn't need a lot of, um, he didn't need a, a steady income. He didn't need property because people took care of him, right? People, right. Um, people took care of him because he was this, you know, this revered religious figure. Well, Bronson Alcott expected people to do the same thing for him, basically. Um, because he thought of himself as a prophet. And there were times when he thought of himself as virtually, you know, the, a new Messiah or as so godlike, you know, that, that people should revere him. Um, and he was not averse to taking charity. He was not averse to um, accruing tremendous debts. Um, what he was averse to was earning money, basically. Okay, so the man, okay. the man did not want to, did not want to get a steady job and support his family, you know, and stop. That was, that really sums him up. Um, it went against his spiritual principles, basically. So he would, um, he was a teacher for a while until that blew up. The temple school became the sort of uh, scandal in Boston when Louisa was quite young. I think she's about five or six years old. And um, when they left Boston after that scandal, he was um, about five or six thousand dollars in debt. Because oh gosh! At that time, yeah. And so, in Little Women, we have the March family, who's, you know, we kind of have a sense that they've um, they used to be wealthy, but they're somehow mysteriously Mr. March gave away all of their um, all of their family income, and so now they're poor. Well, in real life, <laughs> he didn't give it away. He just uh, he just ran up huge debts, and his um, his reputation was so scarred after that, it was impossible for him to, to earn a living as a teacher again. Um, he had, you know, they would take in pupils um, who went bored with them here and there, but he never again ran a school. Um, mm -hmm. he, he wouldn't, he didn't mind earning money as a writer or as a lecturer. See, all of these were sort of ways for him to be a kind of minister, even though he wasn't a member of any organized church, kind of like Mr. March and Little Women. And he wanted to be able to sort of preach his own gospel. And he could do that as a teacher, or as a writer, or a lecturer, but anything else besides like chopping wood, he would chop wood for, you know, pennies here and there. But basically any other sort of profession would go against his principles. and. As a result, the family uh, was extremely, extremely poor. I mean, it is, I think, hard for us to fathom and imagine because I think they hid it from people as much as they could. But Louisa grew up basically malnourished um, and not properly clothed. And um, it's kind of a miracle that they all survived, at least you know, into adulthood. They all survived into adulthood. Beth died when she was a young adult. <clears throat> but it's quite remarkable because um, because of the way they lived. And it's not only that he didn't want to earn money for the family, but the other problem, we want to call it a problem, was that he had very strict spiritual principles about what kind of food they should eat. Um, for instance, they weren't supposed to eat any animal products. So basically they were vegans. Right. And that's a really hard thing to do in the mid-19th century. Um, they ate a lot of apples. <laughs> they they pick apples from the trees around their property. 
um, uh, Louise is always talking in her journals about eating apples while she's writing. And um, they had some bread, um, but no milk, no dairy, um, no cheese, no meat products. And this was really hard on them. Plus they were not allowed to wear any uh, wool or cotton products. So they had to, I think it was linen, flax was the only material that, that you know, suited his scruples, his principles. And of course you can imagine what it was like wearing linen in Massachusetts winters. Right. Um, yeah, so they, they really struggled with pretty extreme poverty for most of her youth. And I'm sure that put the marriage through quite a bit as well. Oh, gosh, yeah. It's um, Abigail Alcott, Louise's mother, was a very, uh, she was kind of like Marmee and Little Women. <clears throat> she had, had to work really hard at suppressing her anger towards her husband. <laughs> so she, mm-hmm. um, she apparently was famous for these outbursts. And she once said um, something like, I wish people who carried their head in the clouds would take their bodies with them. Uh, she was so frustrated at, you know, how her husband could just live on his principles and never think about the practical side of life. So she was the one who had to, had to figure out how to clothe her family, how to feed them on like next to no income. They were constantly taking in charity and they were often having to send the girls away to live with family members or friends who offered to take them in for a time to sort of lessen their burdens. Um, Mm -hmm. So it actually, if you look at the, the course of Louise Malcott's childhood, the family living all together under the, under the same roof almost never happened. Um, Bronson Alcott was often away on one of his lecture tours and he'd come home with, you know, maybe a dollar in his pocket after that. Um, or he was, he went to England for a long time trying to find, you know, like-minded souls. Um, and so they're often, you know, often the family was separated and Abigail was the one who had to carry all the burdens of the family. I mean, there's a really great book called Marmee and Louisa by Eve LaPlante. Mm-hmm. That really is the only book that I think really gets at, you know, who she was as much as we can know, because after she died, she wanted Louisa to destroy a lot of her journals um, and her, her private writings, because that was her release valve. That was where she expressed how she really felt. And after she died, Bronson was reading them as well. And I think realized for the first time how angry she had been and how difficult things had been for her, how resentful um, she'd been that, you know, that he could go off and do all these things and have all this intellectual companionship. And she was left at home with these babies. Um, And she had many miscarriages too. It was very difficult, um, you know, time for her. And she, she had to, you know, do all this manual labor in the house. She had to take in boarders. Uh, children that she's caring for for two years they had a mentally disabled child living with them that she cared for and received a little money for um, so it was a very backbreaking life and Louisa said once that it takes what did she say it takes three women to take care of a professor or I'm sorry a philosopher it takes three women to take care of a philosopher and by the time they're grown uh, they're pretty much used up right so she saw her mother basically worked into the ground, taking care of her father. 
um, and the rest of the family. But we just don't know, we don't really know the full extent of what she experienced because Bronson and Louisa destroyed most of her journals. And um, apparently that was, you know, that was her wish that they would do so, but it is kind of a tragedy really. Now, we're doing Eight Cousins right now, and the reason, one of the reasons we picked Eight Cousins is because we really wanted to talk about education and kind of like relate that back to Bronson's thoughts on education, or really Louisa's thoughts on like how young women should be behave and how they should be, you know, schooled. Mm -hmm. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about Louisa's education or, or lack thereof? Well... In some respects, she was not educated because she never went to school, except for there was maybe one year when they were living in Concord when she and her older sister went to school. When she was very, very little, Anna went to her father's temple school in Boston. I think Louisa went there some too, but she was really little. Um, But, you know, so in that respect, she received virtually no, you know, formal education. But she had at home this incredibly knowledgeable, literate father and mother who um, her father, since he didn't have his own school anymore after the temple school dissolved, he basically became sort of the teacher of the children at home. And he also had a friend, Charles Lane, who he brought, they started Fruitland's experiment together in I think 1842, 43, I'm trying to remember which year that was. And she, uh, he taught them lessons as well. So they would have lessons with Charles Lane. A lot of them were very, um, very unusual (laughs) compared to, you know, how children were taught at the time, even today, how children are taught. They use the Socratic method. So they would basically ask them lots of probing questions and trying to lead them along a certain path of, you know, figuring things out for themselves. And Louisa wasn't, didn't always give them the answers that they wanted. She was um, a somewhat difficult child in that respect, a bit more willful um, than some of the others. But that was, you know, her experience with education. But it was, it, it actually served her quite well in terms of her, you know, her later writing because she was incredibly well read, and her family never you know, they never limited what she had access to necessarily. And she had Ralph mm-hmm. Waldo Emerson living across the street, you know, and Thoreau was her, you know, she would go off on these excursions with Henry Thoreau, would take a bunch of kids out to Walden Pond. And, and so, you know, in many ways, these were her teachers, you know, and right. that's, she was incredibly lucky. Big thanks to Anne for coming on the show this week to talk Louisa May Alcott with us. Now, I know that interview was super short, but don't worry. She is coming back on the show next week as well. Right now, we've got to just dive into this Eight Cousins recap. Okay, first point, orphans. Yeah. I want to talk about orphans. Yeah. So, um, I mean, we get into this right away in Eight Cousins, right? Like, this is an orphan story. Orphans in children's literature, this is a thing. This is a total archetype, right? Mm-hmm. Joy in the Facebook group had brought up Emily of New Moon. So she was making a comparison there. And I was like, oh, well, okay. This reminds me that this is like so many books. Every book. So I'm just going to – every book. I mean, I'm just going to name a few so you guys like get the picture. So Anne of Green Gables, a series of 
of unfortunate events, Tom Sawyer, Harry Potter, the BFG, the Boxcar Children, Huck Finn, Oliver Twist, A Little Princess, Heidi, Pollyanna, The Secret Garden, which we're going to talk about, and of course, so Eight Cousins. Here we are. Here we are. That was just a few. (laughs) Now, the thing that I find as well is like, obviously in classic literature, orphans are a big thing, but... You get it so much in like contemporary fiction, but most especially in fantasy fiction. So mm. even if a child isn't like officially an orphan, like maybe their parents are still alive, but they they'll be removed from them. So like they'll go through a portal right. to another world, or they'll go back in time. And by removing the parent, it kind of allows the protagonist to go on this independent journey, and it it takes away that person that they have that they're questioning. So instead yeah. of saying, like, can I do this? They're saying, I will do this or I need to do it. And so it gives them kind of some agency that I think a, a character with parents who's of a younger age just wouldn't have. Exactly. It's exactly what it's doing. And I think it also, um, for the child who's reading the book, they're also starting to think about what their decision-making process is aside from their parents, Right. Yeah. Like they're starting to think about themselves as an independent being. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's such a popular, you know, thing in children's literature. Here we go. Next point. I'm going to keep it short. We have to read the preface of Eight Cousins. We have to. It's so relevant to this book and her life. It is so relevant. Do you want to go ahead and read this? I've highlighted it for you in the notes. I see it. Okay. Do it in your best Bostonian accent. No, I don't know if that's oh how she gosh. sounded. I've already told you I was doing Owen Wilson's voice when I was reading this book. So I could do Owen Wilson's voice for you. Maybe I'll throw that in there at the end. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to read this American author's uh, preface of my British accent for you all to enjoy. The author is quite aware of the defects of this little story, many of which were unavoidable as it first appeared serially. But... As Uncle Alec's experiment was intended to amuse the young folks rather than suggest educational improvements for the consideration of the elders, she trusts that these shortcomings will be overlooked by the friends of the eight cousins, and she will try to make amends in a second volume, which shall attempt to show the rose in bloom. Hmm. Moving in the movie title. Working in the movie title. Moving in. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay. Interesting. It sounds like she had an interesting editing process here. Well, it sounds a little bit like Elizabeth Gaskell. You know, you're putting this book out, it's serialized, you kind of work into these deadlines, and maybe there's decisions that in hindsight you wouldn't have made. And so yeah, absolutely. you're like, oh, rubbish. Like, I've done that in this chapter, and now I'm stuck with it in this one. And, you know, you kind of, she's like, don't worry, there's going to be another book. Elizabeth Gaskell. Yeah. She's like, maybe I'll rewrite the end. And she doesn't, but. I think there are definitely, I feel like she feels like maybe there's some threads hanging. I do. Um, I don't know. When I initially read this, I was like, oh, she had a problem with her editor. Yeah. I get the sense that she does. And I will get into that a little bit more later um, because there's one line in here that really uh, doesn't really ring true to me that I think might be a little bit um, sarcastic. 
My my edition actually had um, another preface which was printed in her handwriting and it said something along the lines of, um, I hope this can go some way to apologising to all of the people, uh, all of the children that have written to me from their friend Louisa May Alcott or something. She's like trying to acknowledge the fact that she gets all of these letters and she can't respond to all of them. So she dedicates the book to all of the children that have written to her. Oh, that's, that's really cute. nice. Yeah, That is very cute. And that edition that you have is that um, is that uh, the one you had when you were a kid? It is, yeah. Nice. Yeah, it's just like a little. Um, I think it's a penguin one. It's like way across the room. But uh, my mum gave me that and Rose and Bloom at the same time, and the spines all cracked and it's a bit thumbed through. But um, yeah, I, do you know what? It's it's really sad. So I, I did like a book purge. I've done several, and Eight Cousins mm-hmm. and Rose and Bloom survived, but Old Fashioned Girl did not. <gasps> Because I had Old Fashioned Girl and it was like the same set. Mm-hmm. So. Was it too tatty? No, I just, um, I don't know. I just, just had you to. You just threw it out. I just, I donated it. Oh, wow. Yeah, you can't I keep thought... like, I don't know. You can't keep every book. <sighs> I have this problem. I try, but I do need to keep purging. Anyway. 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 So Old Fashioned Girl, um, goodbye. Wow, I, that's rude. Um, so I just want to point out, okay, one more thing. So I guess it is a third yeah. thing. Yeah. <laughs> Louisa May Alcott wrote Eight Cousins after Little Women. I think it's important that everyone kind of like keep this in mind. Mm-hmm. So this is after she had struggled for years and years and years. I mean, her whole, her whole life was a mess, right? And um, suddenly she's like a big success. So... I think that she's feeling a lot more confident about her writing mm-hmm. and more confident about the views that she's expressing. And now we can move on. We can move on to the chapter breakdowns. <laughs> so chapter one, two girls in which we are introduced to our heroine and a new friend. Rose Campbell is recently orphaned, as we said. She's just left a very fancy school for fashionable young ladies and is staying with her aunt's peace and plenty. Is it somewhere near Boston, Lauren? Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's sitting on her own. She's trying to have a cry. Now, for me, the opening of this book massively feels like the opening of Jane Eyre. And I know that a few people have commented on uh, about that on the Facebook group. So the, the line is, the opening line, Rose sat all alone in the big best parlour with her little handkerchief ready, laid ready to catch the first tear, but she was thinking of her troubles and a shower was expected. But I mean obviously great prose, great prose. Great prose. But I like I like this idea that she's like willing herself to cry. Yeah. But like this isn't a child that is crying. This is a child that is like waiting to cry or is expecting to cry or maybe thinks they should cry. And there's a huge difference as well, just in that this doesn't feel threatening. Like the the opening of Jane Eyre is immediately very tense. And you know that she isn't welcome and she isn't safe. And, Mm -hmm. you know, this is a family that doesn't love her. But almost from the get-go of this this story, you know that everyone means well and everyone is kind of doting. They don't quite know what to do with her, but like everyone's got these good intentions. No one's going to abuse her, apart from maybe our Mm -hmm. (laughs) mind. Um, and like even the weather, like everything. So like the rains personified uh, a lot in the first few chapters. Uh, it says like yeah. "cry away, I'm with you," 
I think that's really lovely. Yeah, um, it is. It's beautiful. Like I, um, this is me revisiting Louisa May Alcott after many years. And I like this first chapter, I was like, oh, this is beautiful prose. Like, yeah, <laughs> as someone who used to be an acquisitions editor in children's like literature too, like it's hard to write for children and people always want to be cutesy with it. Mm-hmm. They want to like rhyme or they want to be like edgy and weird. And then I'm like, oh, just the simplicity. It's so is, simple. Is, it's so simple and lovely. Yeah. She's very good. Very good author. She is great. She's great. And uh, do you know what? I was like looking, I was trying to find some like really meaty, descriptive chunks, like metaphor and stuff. And like it's in there, but it, it's so quick. It just like flutters through the writing. And so much of yeah, it is dialogue it, and action. And then you'll just get like, yeah. Bit and it's just like, yes, the rain cry away. I'm with you. Like, yeah. And it has to, to flow. And mm-hmm. also to like read, if you're going to read this aloud with a child mm-hmm. as well, it really has to, you can't have like big meaty passages. Yeah. So I think also the timing on this, which she's probably not super happy about because it's serialized. And so she, you know, she has very specific word counts. Um, on these chapters, but um, is really lovely. Like, I, I'm like, oh, this is like actually perfectly timed. And actually, I think these are all the right length, these chapters. Yeah, definitely. Now, Rose is kind of sitting around in the library. She's having a think. Uh, she reflects upon the fact that um, the Campbells, her family, have been sea captains for generations. So, of course, immediately relevant to my interests. Yeah, uh, she that thinks makes about. Sense. A local child, Annabelle Bliss, who's kind of been sent to spend some time with her. And again, here, I love like the expediency of the writing. So by saying that Rose doesn't love the child, Annabelle Bliss, who is um, like a doll, you know, she's she's very proper. She's very prim. She just sits there and she does as she's told and she looks perfect. The fact that Rose isn't relating to that and is kind of pushing back against that means that that's not Rose. Yeah you just get straight away like she might be dressed up in like all of these fancy clothes she might have this money she might be like the only girl in the family but that isn't her and that's not her identity so you can immediately kind of get rid of any of those ideas um also mm-hmm. it feels strange having it in a book but like louisa may alcott just keeps being like oh yeah reading too much very bad for kids like this whole <laughs> chapter is just like don't read too much it's not very good for you yeah, it's a little odd. A little odd. So uh, Rose is sitting around. She hears this kind of funny sounding bird in the house. So she follows the noise and then she comes across a servant girl in the kitchen. And this girl is called Phoebe. And it turns out that this girl is singing, but she's kind of making like bird sounds. And mm-hmm. I think like Louisa May must have known about birds quite a bit because there's that beautiful line like, where she's just listing all of the different sounds that Phoebe's making in it. The swallows twitter, the robins whistle, the blue jays call, the thrush's song and the wood doves coo. Like this is someone yeah. like who knows bird song and like can describe the different like the differences. It's not just bird song, it's like there's all the different identities. Mm-hmm. Now does that would track? Hmm? That would track, like based on like, you know, her education and sort of how yeah. she grew up and yeah, being out in nature constantly. I feel like, I mean, iPads weren't a thing, so people spent a lot more time looking at birds, I guess. It's true. I it's true. The um, Bronte birds. sisters freaking loved their bird books. Yeah. They were into them. 
So despite their differences, these two girls do like each other a lot. They are having a lovely time hanging out. Uh, It's said that uh, Rose takes a sudden fancy to this girl who sung like a bird and worked like a woman. So she is impressed by like hard work and resilience and not by fashion and being fine. Because Phoebe's got this really tragic backstory. She is an orphan as well. She grew up in the workhouse. She's at this big fine home, but she doesn't even know if she's staying there. Like her position is very unclear. She's kind of on a work trial. Um, And Rose does this thing. And so, and this is where like her flaws start coming in. They start creeping in. So she immediately like romanticizes Phoebe's life. Um, yeah she's you know like gets over overwhelmed she's like oh you're like Arabella from this novel that I read and it's like she isn't like someone from a novel that you read she is a a living breathing person in front of you but Mm -hmm. Phoebe kind of takes it all on the chin Uh, and then Rose gets called into the parlor so she kind of gets summoned away by Debbie the housekeeper Mm -hmm. and she's told you have to mean housekeeper yeah the mean housekeeper Oh, but before she gets sent away, there's this, I'm really sorry, <laughs> jumping all over the place. But there's this line, she's like, I'm afraid of horses, boats make me ill, and I hate boys. <laughs> and I don't, like, I think nowadays you have these tropes where it's like, if someone isn't a girly girl, because of, like, gender parity and stuff, it's like, I'm not, I'm not a girly girl, so I really like boats. I, like, she'd be really rambunctious and stuff. But she isn't. She's like more complex, more complex than that. So there are yeah. points in the book where she admits to being vain and like she does like wearing dresses and looking pretty and like doing like that side of stuff. But ugh, I don't even know what I'm saying. Cut that bit out, please. <laughs> I understand what you're saying, though, because I think um, Louisa May Alcott herself like saw herself as a tomboy and she liked to put these elements in her her female characters. Like, I think she was actually playing with gender a little bit and gender norms. Like, like we don't all have, we don't all have to be one thing. Yeah, exactly. One, or one of the like, other. I think that's really where yeah. she was going with it, with a lot of her work. Yeah, definitely. Cause it's like, I think on a surface level, like Rose is not, um, I think it's looking at like how we nurture children into these roles. Yeah. Like everything yes. that Rose is encouraged to do, it's like, I'm too old to play with boys or I don't like doing these things. And actually she does all of these things, like eventually through the book, like she does do them. So maybe if she wasn't told that she shouldn't like them and that she should focus on like being well, is a certain way, like maybe she would be doing all of those stuff. Whereas the guys, it's they're just told like, go off and be rambunctious and like have a horse and like have a boat and go and do what you want. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. I guess that's my point. And then she also hints, she obviously, so her guardian is a guy that we haven't met yet called Uncle Alec. He's quite mysterious. She doesn't know him very well. And she says, now I belong to him and she'll have to mind him till I'm 18. And this this is like, it's not like a dark undertone, but it, it's a serious situation. This is a man that she's never met. Yeah. He's going to be in control of her finances. He's going to be making all of the decisions about her life. And she's going to have to listen to him until she's 18 years old. So, like, what does her future have in store? She doesn't know. Right. True story. So chapter two, the parlor. I keep saying she's going to the parlor. Guess what? That's where she's going. (laughs) (laughs) And it's almost like a trap because she goes in and there's literally a line of guys. And it's Archie, Mac, Charlie, Steve, Geordie, Will and Jamie. This was overwhelming for me. (laughs) 
so the oldest Archie is 16 the youngest Jamie is six so there's quite a quite an age gap between them and um you kind of this chapter is mostly just about introducing everybody's character you you know Archie's like the boss he's the one that's in control you've got Max the bookworm called the worm you've got Prince Charlie he's like the hot one apparently like Louisa May definitely makes a point of telling us that Charlie's hot so thanks for that seems mm-hmm. a bit of a dandy um Lauren what is a top knot um is that a sort of tie no it like isn't. the way that you do your tie I think it's maybe so I tried to google this and all I got was like, I feel like months. I do a top knot for John's ties uh, maybe it, I feel like it's on his head I'm sure it says it's on his head so anyway Steve's a dandy he's got a top knot unclear what that is if you're an expert <laughs> of Victorian male fashion please let me know or just like a top knot like a bun on the top of your head I don't think he'd have had a bun I mean that would be very dandy I just, I just don't think it is that. Now I'm now I'm picturing a man top knot, like bun, a man bun. <laughs> a man bun. Well, picture away. And like maybe a little moustache. Um, then yeah. we've got Geordie and Will, who basically don't have any identities apart from um, they're the youngest without being the baby. And they're just like the skivvies and everyone tells them what to do. And then you've got Jamie, who is the baby and is six. So they all kind mm-hmm. of go up to her and say hello. And then she asks them if they saw the circus. So she had, when she was with Phoebe, she sees all of these ponies go by and she sees this like little dog cart that's all brightly painted. And they all think it's hilarious because that was them because they just ride all over this hill in their horses yeah, and their they car. Like, like a gang, like a little pony gang. Yeah, they're a little gang. <laughs> and they're like, oh, we'll show you. And she's like, mm, I don't think that's proper. I shouldn't go to the barn. And it basically, it's almost like, they, I think it says that they bore her away. And I just had this image of Archie just being like, whatever, and picking her up and carrying her out there. <laughs> just stomping out of the room with her. Yeah. But it did really strike me that, um, so they go out there and like they kind of just thrust her into the carriage thing, the, the car, and they wrap her up in coats and scarves. And there's just so much movement and noise. And every every scene with all of the cousins in, like right from the beginning, like the Campbells are seafaring, like you get loads and loads of references to that just in just in the the language that Alcott's using. But when she talks about the boys, they they feel like water. Like they're constantly moving. They they flow yeah. around her and they rush in and they bear her away. And even like when they dress her, it's almost like they're emptying a bucket over her head and the clothes just kind of land on her body. Yeah, totally. They're overwhelming. They like overwhelmed me in this in this chapter. Yeah. I was like, oh, this is too much, these kids. There's a lot. And it just keeps going. There yeah. was a really cute bit. So Charlie, um, they're all dressed up in Scottish clothing the first time she meets them. And they kind of explain that they've been doing um, some reading into the family history. They find out that they're descended from Scots- Scotsmen. So they start wearing like Scottish gear and they learn ballads and like, little snippets from plays and like sword fights. And I think Steve uh, has bagpipes. And um, Mm -hmm. just as like a throwaway comment, Charlie's like, oh, our people like it. And then later on, they refer to Rose as our cousin. Now my niece, uh, she calls my two youngest brothers, she calls them her uncle cousins. Okay. Her best boys. And it just really reminds me of that. Like when it's like they immediately take ownership and like the sense of, our people like they're a clan they're a tribe and they live on this Mm -hmm. hill 
Oh, and then the other thing that this chapter made me think of, which is completely unrelated to anything before I move on to the next bit, is um, the only adaptation of Eight Cousins that I would happily sit through, I think, would be a Studio Ghibli version. Okay. I don't know if you're familiar with Studio Ghibli films. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, they always have, like, those gangs of, like, brothers who... uh, they're almost like faceless like they've always got these like big mustaches or like they look right, the right. and they're just led by like this matriarch just got this image of all of these like boys just running around wearing like little tartan kilts and uh i think i think that i think it'd be cute i think it would be such a cute fun film i just think it would <laughs> i could just really see it in my head now so moving aside from that the boys all stay for tea. They take Rose back to the house. Um, oh, Phoebe comes to say Rose has to come back inside now because obviously she shouldn't be in the barn with the horses. So they all go in. They have tea. Um, they start listing off like loads of really delicious sounding food. Marmalade, plum cake, baked pears, fritters, tarts. Uh, one of them says, I'm your man for lemon pie, ma'am, which just killed me. Um, <laughs> and then while they're having this tea, they start like, telling this riddle it's so, they're just like oh yeah there's like a special treat coming and everyone's like who's gonna have the treat first oh aunt plenty will have it first oh and then the others might have it what color is it oh it's blue and brown anyway i did not get that riddle for years i didn't know what they were quite on about but what i liked about it was that this whole chapter is just Rose being completely swept up and then they like start talking in riddle and also they would they're brothers and you know and cousins and they would like talk in shorthand mm-hmm. and you're just like not quite sure what's going on like you're not in on the joke yet you're still an outsider yeah and like, the reader definitely has that with Rose yeah yeah definitely and then to round off that chapter so Rose is obviously completely exhausted by this insane day that she's had with with these cousins she falls asleep on a sofa and she wakes up and she's being carried and for for a minute it's like it's really lovely scene where she thinks she's being carried by her dad but yeah it isn't it's someone else and he says this is my little girl and I'm uncle Alec and I will say here I was going to wait until the end I'm sorry guys on Facebook I cannot get on board with any of you like hating on Uncle Alec or saying that this scene is creepy or saying that it's weird. This is a children's book about a little orphan who's been adopted by her very nice uncle. And this is the first time he meets her and it's a very tender moment. I'm not buying into this nonsense. (laughs) Stop seeing seeing stuff that isn't there. There's no snarks and grumpkins. He's just being nice. And that is it. I'm not going to (laughs) engage. I will say for this scene, oh, I have so much to say about Alec later. I know you um, do. <laughs> I was sitting here like, oh, God, has she seen my notes? Oh, um, I have. <laughs> but I do, li- I kind of, I like this introduction in this scene because um, she has just lost her father. Her father was an invalid for quite some time. And is it here or is it possibly later where they mention Alec and her father kind later. of look alike? Oh. Um yeah but he's like this younger healthier you know more engaged version of her father so he is like a dream father you know so that i feel like that's where i kind of like got that sense of him but also like she's missing her dad so her mom her mom passed away when she was younger she's been with her dad for a long time she after her father's death she's 
been at boarding school for about a year. She's just arrived at this at Aunt Hill, which is called Aunt Hill because other than her uncle Mac, all of the other uncles are at sea or I think are deceased. She hasn't spent any time with her male cousin. So she's just been surrounded by women. Um, yeah. She would have been surrounded by uh, other girls at school. Um, I'm guessing a majority of female teachers. And so when it's the loss of a father to then be picked up like a child again, to be held close like by a guy who is, yeah, like you say, almost undoubtedly going to look like your dad. Like there is going to be that moment of like, is this a dream? Is this real? Is this my dad? Who is this? Like, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's sad. It's this little sad, happy moment. It's cute. Yeah. Sad tear. But also I think with the Uncle Alex stuff is, I read this when I was a kid, so it's really hard for me to see him as anything other than like this great guy. Sure. So, because I see him through that lens. So, Mm -hmm. whatever. Uh, Chapter three, it's called Uncles. And in this chapter, um, guess what? We meet Uncle Alec. (laughs) I guess we can discuss him now. (laughs) We do, we do. So the riddle says that the the tree is blue and brown, right? And in the first description of Uncle Alec, he's described as a brown, breezy man in a blue jacket. So you'd think I would have solved that riddle a long time ago, (laughs) but I never did. Uh, Uncle Alec, she sees Uncle Alec kind of walking through the grounds of the house and they kind of make eye contact and then they have a little chat and he's like, come down and see me. And she's like, "Mm, I'm not allowed in the garden before breakfast. And he's just like, oh, I'll come up to you then. And he just climbs up the side of the house. And then he's like, he's so much. So he climbs up the side of the house. They have this little chat on the balcony um he makes loads of references about he's like i'm on deck and i'll salute you captain or like boat references and then he starts going through all of her stuff and just tossing her medicine out the window yep yep like there's a point where uh, phoebe brings her a cup of coffee and he's just like no like throws the coffee out the window i mean i'm holding my tongue on uncle alec for a minute i know you are. i know I... yeah <laughs> So uh, a few things that Alec is really strong on. He's not strong on um, medicating children, basically, Mm -hmm. like stuffing them full of pills. He's not big on them drinking loads of coffee or spending too much time inside. He really wants her to do housework. He wants her to be like a woman of action. He doesn't believe that she's got a bad constitution or that she's sickly. He thinks that the reason that she can't sleep at night is because she's not doing enough in the day. These all sound like very sensible, normal things that we say about children, like even now. Like children can't sleep at night because they use screens too much and they're not active enough and then they're tired at school, right? We're still having these conversations. Um, Yeah, absolutely. And at the time, we must say that this was kind of, because we've talked a little bit about how Victorian children were very sheltered. I mean, because you also have this high death rate of Victorian children, Mm -hmm. right? So everyone's very protective of them. They're little dolls. But also children weren't really children until the Victorian times. The Victorians invented childhood. That's true. Like. That is true. And even, But you do have Alec coming in here and saying, like, here's a new definition of childhood. Yeah. 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 But also, I think I wonder how much of it is like, this is, this is a, well, no, because even the boys, I'm just trying to think about because so much of this is is about gender and gender clarity yes. and like how we raise girls as opposed to how we raise boys and how that's nonsense and there's like irregardless again like very relevant now because 
there is there is no difference between boys and girls like there are children that grow up not identifying with either gender or identifying one that they weren't born with so like having these set ways that we say like this is a boy and this is how you raise boys and this is a girl like it's it's nonsense and so I do think exactly parts of the book are, are super relevant um something else that's so obviously Rose is completely in love with Phoebe and thinks she's the best thing ever. And she starts describing uh, Phoebe to Uncle Alec. And I think she says like, oh, she doesn't have any worries. And Uncle Alec's like, really? Like, what makes you think that? <laughs> and Rose is like, well, you know, she's from like the poor house and um, she's got no family and she just like works here. Uh, but, and she kind of describes her as being like really hardworking and like good at singing. He's like, she's a brave little girl and I shall be proud to know her. So, like, again, it's like that thing with Anne Elliot that I really admire. Like, Alec admires doers and people that are resilient and kind of bounce back, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there is, oh, so um, he alludes to, um, I think she's kind of hinting at the fact that she's she was a little bit unsure about him and she doesn't want to tell him because obviously right. who wants to tell person like oh I wasn't sure about you and he says your father and I had a trouble once and I thought I never could forgive him so I kept away for years um yeah what like what is that what was the trouble do we know oh the mystery Mm. the mystery the mystery I don't think it's that big a mystery this is like lighting up Facebook by the way people have been discussing it is it is well we love a mystery um I think a mystery would make it much more of an adult yeah storyline mm-hmm. um do you want to talk about what it is like because i think it was pretty much revealed in the facebook group no i don't want to talk about what it is because it's not in chapters one to eight okay so we'll talk about it when it arises in the book um but it does make sense and i actually think that yeah we don't need more of an explanation no so okay. yeah so uncle alec has layers has yeah layers. But um, something I will say about Uncle Alec is that uh, that I think it's important to remember it's very easy for those of us who are Uncle Alec fans, not so much for those of you who aren't on board. Um, this is Alec's like childhood home. This is his family. This is a wealthy mm-hmm. guy. He's smart. He's traveled. He's good looking. He's seen the world. Like he has everything going for him, right? So yeah. he can stroll into that house and fire orders off at people and toss medicine out the window and he has a certain level of like control over the situation that very few of the other characters do have and also as Rose's guardian even her aunt like everyone has to defer to him so he does have the final say and so I don't I think rereading it there are parts where it's like I don't think it would matter if he thought he was doing if someone said to him like actually Alec I really think this is like not the right thing to do I think he'd just be like whatever like I'm trying this like I'm just gonna she's like his experiment right yeah so uh next they all go to church and they are all very worried that the boys are going to be badly behaved because I was too yeah I mean they all love Uncle Alec so much and guess what they were they disgraced themselves immensely Here's a great paragraph. I'm going to read it to you. Rose dared not look up after a while, for these bad boys vented their emotions upon her till she was ready to laugh and cry with mingled amusement and vexation. 
Charlie winked rapturously at her behind his mother's fan. Mac openly pointed to the tall figure beside her. Jamie stared fixedly over the back of his pew till Rose thought his round eyes would drop out of his head. George fell over a stool and dropped three books in his excitement. Will drew sailors and Chinamen on his great clean cuffs and displayed them to Rose's great tribulation. Steve nearly upset the whole party by burning his nose with salts as he pretended to be overcome by his joy. Even dignified Archie disgraced himself by writing in his hymn book, isn't he blue and brown and passing it to her. And in response to that, Aunt Plenty says, mums and dads, you can come up for dinner. Kids, you've got to go home because you're very naughty. Yeah, I like that. Alex is like, don't worry, guys. I've got loads of presents for you. If you're well behaved, you can have them tomorrow. So obviously everyone's like, okay. Chapter four, in which the adults discuss Rose, her upbringing, her education, her sickliness and her prospects. And Rose sits upstairs. Yeah, I kind of like this, actually. I like that you have the meeting of the adults. Just like, Mm -hmm. what are we going to do with this kid? What are we going to do? So Rose goes upstairs to sit with Aunt Peace. Now, um, Aunt Peace is the sister of Aunt Plenty. She's the other auntie that Rose has been living with. And she is described as being like a very pale, quiet, delicate old old lady who was going to be married uh, earlier in her life. But the I think he dies. So it never happens. Yeah. And she puts away her wedding dress and she never marries anyone else. But she's there for all of the young women around her. And it's just a great support. And everyone just loves her. And she's just this great source of comfort and you know Rose adores her like and she goes upstairs just to sit with her and read with her and kind of be there and you almost get like the anti-Miss Havisham vibe Mm -hmm. like this is someone reacting like in a similar fashion but reacting more appropriately versus someone losing their shit and dying in a fire but I will tell you I love it when someone loses their shit and dies in a fire Um, so it does sound like from the discussion that's happening downstairs while Rose is upstairs that Uncle Alec didn't have much of a say, um, as to what happened to Rose the first year after her father died. So that's, you find out that they've had her for about a year and that makes sense. Like if he's been away traveling, um, just like how long stuff would have taken and correspondence. So they've all kind of been left alone and he's like, oh, you've really messed up this child. And they're like, well, we didn't really know what to do with her. So, (laughs) and they keep saying that her dad was leading this very solitary life. Um, I mean, I think, yeah, he he was just away from them. Yeah, exactly. Like they are all on top of each other. Like just, they go to church together. They all live really close to each other. The boys see each other every day. And so I think for them, it's like, if someone doesn't live nearby, then they're going to be the outlier. But again, right. we just don't know what's going on with the Rose's dad situation at this point in the book. So there's like lots of I think, half, half I think that's an important like detail though, because it, it places her as an outsider. Because I mean yeah. she is part of this family and they actually do really want to make her feel very welcome. But I think um it's important that Rose comes across as an outsider mm-hmm. to the audience. And I also think that, you know. Louis, that was probably what Louisa May Alcott was feeling because, you know, she was sent away to live with family members quite often throughout her childhood and um, definitely thought of as as other because her whole family situation was so other. Mm-hmm. But, but still part of a loving family, but just it's like 
we don't really know what's going on with this girl. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Now, in the same way that in the uh, chapter where we're introduced to the seven boys, we kind of get a real sense of each of her aunts and her uncle's characters in this chapter, just just from the way they're discussing her and like the plans that they have from her. So I'll try and move through those real quick. So Aunt Jane doesn't seem to like Rose very much. She calls her a morbid, spoiled girl. And honestly, there is nothing that makes me angrier than when adults willfully misunderstand the nature of children. Mm. And like they take certain behaviours or certain things that don't fit with like their ideology. And they're like, oh, this child's terrible. I hate this child. But then she also starts using like all of this weird American slang that I do not understand. So (laughs) what is a blimber and what is a toot? You know, I'm not sure, but I think that they're Dickens characters. Oh, okay. (laughs) What does that mean? (laughs) Okay. Unclear. It's old timey American slang. If anyone knows what a blimber and a toot, I'm young. (laughs) If anyone knows what that is, you let me know. Um, So her aunt Clara uh, is mainly focused on Rose having good hair and being a debutante and like coming out in society. And as far as she's concerned, people can do what they want. But once Rose hits like a certain age, she is going to have to go to a finishing school. Mm -hmm. And aunt Clara is also the one that lets slip that baby's got money. Rose is an heiress. So it's expected that she um, kind of be like she's got a role to fulfill. Like that's going right. to become more, more and more clear throughout the book is that Rose, there are expectations on her and who she is. Um, her aunt Jessie is like, oh, she just needs a mum, and she's very calm, she's very soft, and she's kind of very team Alec and very team Rose. And I think when I was a kid, I always thought that Alec and Jessie would get together, but are they brother and sister? <laughs> Um, they're certainly related. Yeah, mm. they're either brother and sister or they're cousins. Yes, I'm so thinking. Adult Hannah is not about that noise. <laughs> okay. Also, I think Aunt Jessie's got a husband at sea. She's got a husband at sea. Yeah. Aunt Myra. Aunt Myra's weird. So she keeps She's saying my favorite. stuff like she won't be here a year. Um, a year hence. And it's like, yeah. oh, Aunt Myra, like calm down. And then, so she keeps making all of these morbid comments about how um. Rose is sickly and she's going to die and there's no point in discussing her schooling or talking about what's going to happen in a year's time because she will be dead. Uh, And then they all start hinting about the fact that um, Rose wasn't entrusted to her even though Aunt Myra had a daughter and Aunt Jane describes the perilous experiments you tried with poor Carrie. So I guess I the implication here is that uh, Aunt Myra killed her daughter by like worrying her to death and giving her too much medicine and just fussing over her. And so it's no real surprise there that when Alec turns up and he finds all of that medication in the house, he's just like, not a nope. chance. Like, I mean, guys, that's the real mystery of this book. What the hell happened to Caroline? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she that's, moved to New York and yeah. became a journalist. <laughs> now she doesn't speak to any of them <laughs> Uncle Mac is like hey don't marry women enough in the family already am I right yeah you are right are don't worry Mac Alex not getting married but don't worry none of them had girl children so you've literally got a generation of just men like yeah you're fine you've done it Um. so and then Rose comes down and she's like Aunt Peace would like to see you. And they all leave. They all go upstairs. 
And then we get this little bit with Uncle Alec and he's just kind of pacing around the house and I think he's obviously like trying to think he's got all of these plans, like you said, um, what's he going to do first? And so he decides on giving her a spicy cushion, a box of bread pills made of ivory, not the pills, the box is ivory and the pills are just brown bread that he compresses to pretend that they're pills and this little wooden cup for milk with an imp on it. And then Aunt Plenty is like, I'm not so sure about this medicine. And then Uncle Uncle Alec is just like, hey, you've heard of hash, right? <laughs> <laughs> like as a kid, I did not know what hemp was. I did not know what hashish was. And so whatever, you gloss over it. And this time sure. I read it and I'm like, wait, what? Are you going to like spark up a joint with it? <laughs> what? <laughs> but his point is, well, you've heard of hash. Now let's try corn and rye. I don't know where it dawned on me. I started having a lot of things to say about Alec, and I was writing them down while I was working my way through these chapters. Um, the first thing, though, was that Alec is a manic pixie dream parent. Yeah. He's a kid yeah. in seeking a friend for the end of the world. Yeah, he absolutely is. He's Natalie Portman in that terrible movie with Zach Braff. What film is that? Garden Brad? State. Oh, Garden State. State. That's that's who he is, guys. We talk about Garden State a lot. <laughs> I have never mentioned Garden State. Not true. Very strange, guys. Very strange. So, chapter five is called A Belt and a Box. And first things first, okay, the next day Rose gets up and she is like, you know what? I'm not going to have coffee today. No, she goes and milks a cow. She goes and milks a cow. I mean, I guess she didn't get a caffeine headache, right? Ugh, no, but that you know that usually comes in at what three o'clock in the afternoon, so she's got a few hours. <laughs> she's got a while. So she goes ahead and um, milks a cow. Like how wholesome! And I also found this really interesting because Louisa May Alcott was a vegan. Mm-hmm. Oh, was she? Um, yeah, I don't know if she was a vegan at this stage in her life still, but yeah, she was raised vegan. So I was like, oh, oh okay. Um, anyway, uh, Alec is very proud and he tells her uh, that he wants her to get rid of her restrictive belt because like, go take a run, take a run after you've milked that cow. And she's like, I can't do it with this belt. And he's like, uh, yeah, you can take that belt off. And don't worry, like if you really need one. I've got no end of Italian scarves and Turkish sashes amongst my traps. Of course. <laughs> of course he does. Like, of course he does. I mean, he has boxes and boxes of delights. Ah, oh, he really does. Manic pixie. So um, this quote, I can't remember where I pulled this from this chapter, but it's, I just like, a happy soul in a healthy body makes the best sort of beauty for a man or a woman. So this is like Alex's kind of main message of this chapter. And um, that's when I was like, this book is like Kashi cereal. I didn't you know? realize. <laughs> it's just like healthy and good for you. It's wholesome. And whole, like, it's very wholesome. wholesome. It's wholesome. And my husband's always trying to get me to eat it. So, um, Alec does the most manic pixie thing where he starts like redecorating a room in the house, presumably for him. And he's like turning the house upside down and he's like, you know, getting all his trunks out and um, 
you know, just just going mad. And Rose starts playing dress up when he's like pulling out all this stuff. And he's not, he's gif- gifting her things from his travels as well, right? Mm-hmm. And um, suddenly Rose remembers her BFF Phoebe and she starts to feel this guilt that she's she's had so much and Phoebe has had so little. And she shares these thoughts with her aunt who, you know, tries to say like, these things aren't really what Phoebe needs. Yeah. You two are in different positions in the world. And I think she's, I mean, she's hinting at you're not even at the same class level and like you're going to have very different lives. I don't think she's saying that in a like rude way, just more of a more practical way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Like she's not going to need these new dresses. Like you should maybe just give her some older stuff because she, you know, she has to work and she has to clean for a living. She's not in need of like ball gowns and fancy things. And um, it's a bit like let them eat cake, isn't it? A little bit. <laughs> yeah. And um, Rose says, you know, I'd rather give her the new ones for I think she is a little bit proud and might not like the old things. If she was my sister, I would do because sisters don't mind, but she isn't. And that makes it bad. You see, I know how I can manage this beautifully. I'll adopt her. <laughs> so like, okay. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting way. It's an interesting way of thinking of this. Yeah, that fits. Um, well done. It's it's very sweet. It's very naive. Um, but I do like her aunt's response, which is, I'm afraid um you could not do it legally until you're older. But you might like you might like to see if she's into this plan. And at any rate, you can be very kind to her for, in one sense, we are all sisters and we should all help one another, which is a very sweet thought. And yeah. I like that this is actually coming from the aunt and not from Alec as well. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah. So, um, and Rose that, adopts that is a theme Phoebe. that runs through all of um, Alcott's books, I think. Mm-hmm. Sisterhood. Yeah. It is sisterhood. And... Um, there have been complaints in the Facebook group that, you know, there aren't strong female characters. Yeah, we're only eight chapters in. We're only eight chapters in, but I do think this is like the sweetest, most genuine moment in this book, too. Is when her aunt's like, we're all sisters, you should help her out. Yeah. Um, and then she does adopt her. And that's that's the most touching moment out of these eight chapters for me. Absolutely. I just realized I said that, like, guys, don't get your hopes up. There are no strong characters in this book. (laughs) I said that like I was alluding to there being some. We've basically met everyone. (laughs) Pick an aunt because that's who you've got. I'm going with Aunt Myra. She's pretty great. I mean, she, she killed her daughter. But anyway. Chapter six, Uncle Alex's room. So beginning of this chapter um, is Uncle Alec, and he is driving his girl up on Hill to deliver all the presents to all of those bad boys. Which yeah, is just, who all just happen to be at Aunt Jessie's house. Yeah, total madness. And this is a confusing chapter for me, uh, or the confusing character introduction of Pokey. Mm. he's in it for um, like a, a second but yes so pokey is jamie's doll mm-hmm. but not a doll a real child 
I'm guessing a servant's child. I always read it as a neighbor's child. Okay. Because I was a kid and I didn't have servants, so I didn't see servants when I read this stuff. Sure. Like, unless I'm someone's guessing... named, like, Debbie or Phoebe, you just don't, I don't know, it just yeah. doesn't occur to you that there would be servants there, but. So Pokey's a little girl who is just, like, sort of getting into trouble with the boys. And um, I'm not quite sure what Pokey's future will be in this book. I can't remember. But I have a giant question mark surrounding Pokey. The thing that I will say about Pokey again, though, is just the conversation leading up to the reveal that Jamie has a doll. Um, Mm -hmm. Is Rosa saying that she's too old to play with dolls. And uh, Aunt Jessie's like, no, you're not. Like, we believe in dolls. Like, again, boys can play with dolls. Girls can play with dolls. Like, it doesn't matter. It's just Mm -hmm. one more, like, one more time for the people at the back. Like, play with what you want to play with and do what you want to do. Like, don't listen to these rules about being too old or being too much of a girl or being too much of a boy. Like, play. Like, just do just do the damn thing. Like, right. just be a child. And also, part of that kind of, like, makes me wonder with the feud, if part of this mm-hmm. feud between um, Rose's father and um, the rest of the family, it really sounds like, to be honest, because she has been hidden, like, she's been kept away from the rest of the family. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's more like her, her, I think her father's name was George. Yeah, it was George. Yeah. If he was more conservative or if he was more like tradition, like he wanted to raise his family a very certain way. Mm-hmm. And this family is just like big and loud and all up in each other's face and constantly in each other's spaces. And they have a lot of ideas and those are all like kind of spilling over onto everyone's children, yeah, you know, just moved away from that. And he's moved away from it. And he's like, raised this perfect princess who's going to be an heiress. And like, this is like your role as a woman. Yeah. This is your role as my daughter. So yeah, kind of. I, I did think about that, like during this chapter, like, hmm, hmm. Okay. Interesting. Who who was George? What was his deal? So after, you know, the presence, we go back to the house and Alec is still like renovating the room and then he decides, finally, it's ready for the great big reveal, just HGTV style. <laughs> Move that and <laughs> It was Rose's room. It was for her. He was doing it for her all the time. That's not quite the reveal. Like, the cushions got, like, some roses and stuff on it. Yeah. Basically, it has girl stuff in it. <laughs> It has girl stuff in it. Remember and she's that looking scene? around. Remember that scene? And, well, I think it's also the books are a big like giveaway as well. Yeah. Well, because that is her Bible and her book. It's of her prayers, Bible. Yeah. yeah. But remember um, when Lucy Snow wakes up in Doc Graham's house? Mm hmm. And she's like looking around and then she starts to see all of the things and then slowly it like dawns on her. She's like, wait a second. Yeah. Because I had that when my when my dad moved house when I was 12 and they didn't tell us that they'd bought this house and I walked in and the only thing in the front room was like a little shelving cabinet with this little model of a shoe that I knew was my stepmom's and I remember staring at it for a really long time and just being like is this their house this is their stuff and then yeah this is a really um 
uplifting scene too. Yeah. It's like again, this girl has been so displaced mm-hmm. and isolated and not really had a place of her own. Like, I mean, you know, she was at boarding school before, and now she's staying with these aunts that she's not like. She hasn't really been wildly familiar with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this family that she's sort of, you know, she's not really connected to. And then he's like, hey, let me build you your own space. And also, if we're talking about this in terms of a film makeover scene. Hello. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But um, <laughs> after this, I was just like, oh, what kind of a boyfriend is Alec? Really that was intense. my first thought. Really I mean, intense. oh, yeah, you can't help but think about this reading it as an adult. You're just like, this guy is just like the living equivalent of that Coldplay song, Fix You. Yeah, like Uncle Uncle Alec, I can get behind. But Alec as a boyfriend, I'm just like. Oh. I know. You just know that if you got angry, he would just be like so calm. He'd be like, are you self-sabotaging again? <laughs> <laughs> and then you throw the box of fake pills at his head and you throw milk at him and yeah yeah oh yeah yeah let's all let's all just oh, think about I alec the boyfriend <laughs> <laughs> do you have some unresolved uncle alec issues that you've transferred over into adulthood yeah call our hotline call our hotline all right, so here's the big chapter. I did. Chapter seven, A Trip to China. So a week later, we know that Alex like, experiments with Rose, or I'm going to just call them lessons because experiments freak me out. And then also mm-hmm. that is how Myra killed Caroline with experiments. Yeah, don't go experimenting on kids. Yeah, don't forget. Don't forget. Um, so yeah. Rose's lessons have continued. The last one was like a gardening lesson. That's they nice. kind of briefly cover it. That's nice. You know, she got out there and she kind of recognizes like, yeah, you know what? Getting out there, playing in the dirt, like actually getting in there with the plants. That was much more useful than just like reading about it in a book. Yeah, definitely. So that is what Louisa May Alcott, I feel, is saying when she's like, don't read too many things. Mm-hmm. Like go and live a life. Yeah. Go live your life. Yeah. Yeah. And this is like, you know, slowly waking Rose up a little bit. So, okay. Alec takes Rose on a problematic journey to China. Um, At first, I was kind of, I wasn't quite sure what was going on. Because he's like, hey, you know, put on this suit. You know, we're going out to the boat. Mm -hmm. And she's like, oh, God, I don't like boats, but I'm going to try it. And, um... Then he starts saying, like, oh, we're going to China. And I was like, okay, are we going to play, like, an imaginary game? Yeah. And I thought he was going to sort of, like, talk her through, like, some of his travels, which I thought could be kind of interesting, but also potentially problematic. Um, But instead, they get on, like, an incoming trade ship. So this is Uncle Max's ship, correct? The Raja, yeah. And, um, yeah, so they get on the the boat and... uh, meet some dudes from China. (laughs) And this quote, you know, really set off alarm bells um, where Rose says, you know, don't ask me to speak to them, uncle. 
I shall be sure to laugh at their odd names and the pigtails and the slanting eyes. Please just let me trot around after you. I like that best. So, yeah, it made me wince rereading it, especially after kind of being like, I love this book. (laughs) Truth, like, honestly, I forgot it happened. Sure. I mean, well, this is like a thing that, you know, is in a lot of our... Yeah, like children's like, lit. Yeah, Lewis, like I wrote my dissertation on it, but um, yeah, I just yeah. remember coming back to him being like, "Oh, I hope people don't think this is the bit." I'm like, "This is great. This is literature. <laughs> this is my favorite part of the book." Um, you know what though? Like, I didn't even actually even have. I don't have a problem with Rose saying this because children say problematic things mm-hmm. based on you know. I, children said things like this when I was a kid based off of Looney Tunes, you know? So like they don't know what they're talking about, but you know, if there's an adult in the room to correct them and really talk about like where these things got started, then that's fine. Then actually I think that's a great lesson. And like for a guy who loves lessons and explaining why people are wrong for doing something, you'd think Uncle Alec could be like, well, actually Rose, that's not a very nice way to talk about these like, work colleagues of mine and your uncle Matt. Right. Right. Um, but, you know, I, it just, it, this was written in a different time and Louisa doesn't have that, like, she doesn't have that language. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have that thought process. Um, so, yeah, let's see. Should we, should we read the part where she's actually on the boat? Yeah, I think, yeah. Do you want me to read it? Yeah, go ahead. Cool. So, this is like the most, con- I mean, the whole chapter is like just full of it, but this is the most condensed right. section where you get the most like racist bang for your racist buck. Um, Mr. Wang Lo was an elderly gentleman in an American costume with his pigtail neatly wound around his head. He spoke English and was talking busily with Uncle Mac in the most commonplace way. So Rose considered him a failure. But Fun C was delightfully Chinese from his junk-like shoes to the button on his pagoda hat, for he had got himself up in style and was a mass of silk jackets and slouchy trousers. He was short and fat and waddled comically. His eyes were very slanting, as Rose said. His cue was long, so were his nails. His yellow face was plump and shiny, and he was altogether a highly satisfactory Chinaman. Man, so much there. So much to work with. So much. I mean, first of all, Wang Lo is like wildly disappointing because he's just like not Chinese Speaks enough. He's English. not stereotypical enough. He's yeah. not like, yeah, but pff, fun see. Good Lord. That's quite the description. So, um, yeah, everyone in the Facebook group immediately starts saying like, this made me really uncomfortable. And mm-hmm. like, it should, guys. Yeah, absolutely. Like, yes, <laughs> absolutely. Um, and Mary's comment was excellent. Um, I think she she just laid this out beautifully. Um, the trip to China is very uncomfortable for modern readers. I read in Marmy and Louisa about how the Alcotts were very progressive for their time. For example, they were ardent abolitionists and Louisa's uncle was a station master on the Underground Railroad. However, this trip to China scene illustrates that no matter how progressive you think you are, you constantly need to check yourself for prejudices, biases, and stereotypes. Like, yes, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, again, I want to do like a whole episode or series of episodes about this because it's 
you know, as a woman of color, I have a lot of feelings about reading classic literature. And then also um, on censorship of scenes Mm -hmm. like this, because I think now I think everyone's first go to is like, let's censor this. No, I don't think you should censor it. And I don't think you should censor it at all. Yeah, I think um, I would read this book to my daughter. And I would use this as a conversation starter. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that shouldn't be ignored. I also think that um, I think that she thought she was helping. I thought I Mm -hmm. think she thinks that she's like inserting diversity Mm -hmm. into this book um, via Alec and his worldview, which is a a white man and his worldview. (laughs) (laughs) And then also like introducing these characters. I think she thinks she's she's helping um, but not realizing that she's she doesn't know what she's talking about, basically. And um, I, I still see it today on a lesser scale. There was a book that I read recently that was published in 2008. And the way that it was talking about transgender issues, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> lady, you needed a sensitivity reader. You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> But it's what's, what is considered the other and what is considered exotic. So the Alcots may have been abolitionists, but they would have been like surrounded by people of color and like slaves and like black men and women and children, you know. But then you've got the these two Chinamen coming in who like are even like even, even one more step removed. Do you know what I mean? So it's like oh, these are people that we understand and we've seen. So, like, abolition for them, but but not for, like... Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, yes, in, in the sense of, like, oh, I understand the problems with slavery. I understand, like, you know, Black Americans or, you know, like, that's a problem that's familiar to me. I know some, I you know, like that. Yeah, yeah it's, like, personal, isn't it? It's, like, on an individual, like... This yeah. relates to my life. Right. Exactly. So, yeah, I just, I mean, it, it is what it is. I think the best thing to do with this, again, is talk about it. Um, I also think that it's it's hard for me, too, because, like, I'm so used to it. Like, my whole life, you like, you come into these situations and you sort of normalize it. Mm-hmm. Um because I've had these sort of conversations with my mother my whole life. And, you know, she's always been like, well, they don't have the language to talk about this or they don't know have the know-how to talk about this. And so I feel like there's been many times where I've, like, given people a pass. Mm-hmm. And I don't want it to seem like I'm, like, giving her a total pass here. But I don't think that she, you know, had the language to really, like, to discuss this issue in a, in a, in a way that we don't that we would find relatable. Yeah. We're just, we've progressed too far, even and, though progress is like a slow rolling trade. And like Alcott writing about race is not the same as someone writing about race now. Yes. Because the conversations moved on. Like you said, the language is different and the context is different and what we know is different. And like, there's so much stuff that has come after Alcott. Like, yeah. That influences the way we talk about the stuff and the way we view it. And 
Exactly. And it's just, it's hard for me as a woman of color because I love classic literature, mm-hmm. but um, I just, you know, for me, I just can't throw the baby out with the bathwater, you know? Yeah. But I yeah. also think it's a way of like looking back and thinking about how far we've come and also like how we talk about these things. And um, I'm glad that like no one glossed over it. And like people were like, hey, I'm raising my hand. This is not right. <laughs> um, Chapter eight. It's called, And What Came of It? So this week, Alec is coming for her penmanship and her money. Oh, damn. It's true. Um, the penmanship, I won't talk about too much. It's it's a mess. Where's he can't read her handwriting. Writing? You know, she's got to get it together. That's fair. Um, the big thing here I want to talk about is that Rose bursts into the room one day. So he's in the study. He's working. And she's like, hey. Can I borrow a little bit of money? And he's like, uh, okay. So he ends up giving her her like allowance for the entire month, basically. Mm-hmm. But he's like, listen, I want to see your book of accounts. Like, what's going on with your accounts? How are you spending your money? And she's just kind of like, uh, I don't know. Accounts are hard. I'm kind of hoping like you would do this, yeah. <laughs> you know? And he is like, no way, girl, like you have to manage your own money, which going back to the preface. Mm -hmm. So this was kind of like I was thinking about the preface when I read this, because when she says, like, don't worry, Alex experiments aren't like serious. They're kind of just meant to amuse. What I'm thinking here is Louisa May Alcott's very serious. Like women need to learn how to manage their money. Yeah. And that's a very radical statement. Yeah. And well, it's I think she, isn't it? it's independence. And I think she deeply believes in this because um, her father put them in such a dire financial situation. I don't think she trusts anyone with her money besides herself. So, um, yeah, I thought this was just like one of the best parts of this book. And then also... Um, I'm imagining she got pushback for this. Yeah. It's pretty radical. And also, um, as I brought up before, um, I think both Joy and Kristen, like, sort of exclaimed some dismay that there weren't stronger female role models for Rose. But I also think, I mean, sadly, that this statement coming from a man at this time means more than coming from a woman. Yeah. Someone coming over from the other side and saying like, no, no, you, you know, you do, that. you do need to well, be responsible not, and take less, care of your money. It's still radical, but it's less, it's less radical. It's more like, it's less radical. And it's sort of like, if a woman were to say it, mm-hmm. if, a, if, if Alex character were a female instead, if it was Alexa, I don't know. And like, I, I think she wouldn't be taken seriously. She'd be sort of like this eccentric figure, right? Um, You know, she could say like, you need to take care of your money. But like a lot of people could dismiss her. Like, what do you even really know about that? Yeah. Like, who, yeah. Yeah. Whatever. Um, It's more authoritative if it comes from a man. 
And it can be sort of, even though it's written by a woman, I mean, Louisa May Alcott is definitely using a man's voice here to throw across some very strong points of view. I think Alec is, is her mouthpiece. Like, these are all... Yes. And so... He's her mouth. Yes, actually. It's like, oh, there's no strong, there's no strong female characters. No, there's no strong female characters, but this book was published openly by a woman. Mm-hmm. So although Alec is saying it, he's fictional. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I think she wants to get that across. I think she wants people to take what Alec is saying seriously. Like she's made him a man. She's made him white. She's made him wealthy. She's made him a doctor. Yeah. Like he, 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 like he has everything. Like what, what is there that he doesn't have? And he's got this like built in daughter. He's a guardian. That's that's even worthier than having a child. Yeah, exactly. You don't have to do that shit. Right. She's not trying to, like, create a character to lead by example. She's just trying to have a character. Because he just dictates. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think that's the point. And he's Um, mine. Because basically at no point are you meant to question him or disagree with him. You're meant to be on Alex's side from the minute he's there. Yeah, exactly. He's supposed to win you over. Yeah. And he does. um, I don't, he I does, don't think he does. Be anything creepy. Yeah, like, yeah, I mean, just, I think if you, for me, like, yeah, everything that you're about to say, looking at your notes, like, funny, I get it, I do get it. But just in terms <laughs> of, like, the things he's saying, it all makes sense. It's all very yeah. sensible. It's just losing think- out having an opinion on children. <laughs> there isn't it's anything true. weird going on. He isn't, like... He isn't, he isn't creepy. He isn't like, I should say he's just her uncle. And Louisa May Alcott has opinions on child, like childhood. Yes. Um, she does have opinions on childhood. And I, th- I made this point in the Facebook group too. I think if she um, was trying to say that as herself, I think she would definitely come under attack. And maybe she had, you know, she's an unmarried woman. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have any children. She has written stuff for children, not wild about writing stuff for children. It's not like her passion. That was not really her goal. That's just her the way she makes money. Um, And she's trying to just like give you the business. She's trying to like push back against, you know, what's being published of the time, which is like all of these instructional manuals for how young ladies should behave. And she doesn't agree with that. So I think she's using a man's voice to sort of get the audience to take her seriously. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So I think the money situation, that's where that was like really drilled home for me. And I was like, oh, damn. And give her props for that. Yeah, definitely. So, Alec. <laughs> I don't think he's creepy, but I cannot not think of him as a... um as like it like as like a boyfriend because <laughs> i haven't had the benefit of reading this as a child right yeah so um i'm coming at this as a woman who's not like terribly far off his own age and i'm like oh alec i know you alec i know so many women who have dated you so i wrote down a lot of thoughts about alec while i was reading this you're probably gonna hate all of them should i just go ahead and read them read them real fast yeah Really? Okay. Oh, I so 
I really strongly disagree with your first point. Okay, carry on. Alec has at least three illegitimate children on at least three different continents. Yeah. Come on. Carry Come on. on. He's a sea- he's a seafaring man. Come on. Carry All on. right. Alec is a magical vacation boyfriend. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Alec is the guy with a fancy job title, endless cash, and no place of employment. Um, he just has like a blank business card. Alec has a man bun. Alec um, makes his own kimchi. Delicious. Alec once trapped you in an elevator and wouldn't shut up about the benefits of raw denim. Alec is all about strengthening his feet and regularly preaches the benefits of toe shoes. True? Not true? Alec has listened to the entire back catalogue of This American Life and regardless of what you're talking about, he can always, always, always relate it back to something Ira Glass has said. Yeah. He can. There you go. There you go. (laughs) Alec. That's the closest to an Alec burn. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not like roasting him all the way. This is just the guy he is. All right. He's he's never gonna get married. Come on. Wow. Does he get married in Rose and Bloom? I can't remember, mate. Dude, now I gotta read this book. Okay. So I'm actually gonna give like top comment to the week to Lauren Wright. Yeah. <laughs> I did love when she said, I had a bowl of oatmeal this morning, and I did that because I wanted Alec to love me i know i was creasing when i read that so funny (laughs) (laughs) like yeah yeah um there's a a couple comments in the facebook group too people saying like i don't think that she would be won over by alec like so quickly and i don't agree with that i think he is a manic pixie dream parent He's all about her. Of like a guardian. I don't understand. Yeah. He's handsome. He's funny. He's interested in got all the answers. He's not a like his whole business is her. Like, yeah. I mean, I could see a fallout for sure with Alec. Yeah. Especially if he gets bored and just is like, listen, I gotta go, honey. And he makes jokes this was about nice. it. He's like, oh, if I knew how hard this was going to be, you know, I'd have run away and just left her until I, until she was 18. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the kind of guy he is, I think. I think he's like, listen, I'm smart. I got this under control. Y'all don't know how to raise a child. Don't worry, I got this. I got this. I got ideas. Fine. Um, so I, I think that that could really, you know, potential for like a major conflict but well don't worry this is a book for kids so it's not gonna <laughs> but it's a book for children but it is a book for children <laughs> well I, the thing the, the one thing i will say about the facebook chat this week is just like this book i'm sorry to disappoint you all but this book is way more superficial and shallow than we have yeah, before and so there is only so much mystery and so much tension and so much darkness that you're gonna find in there and if you I mean you'll find it if you want to go looking for it but um <laughs> like I mean the darkness is the the casual racism with yeah. fancy and the you know like the gender stereotypes like it's there and that's like in the views for the time but in terms of plot mate 
This ain't Poirot. <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> join us next week when we discuss Poirot. More of the darkness <laughs> that's hidden in H <laughs> cousins. <laughs> the darkness within. <laughs> so our last bit of news, last bit of news is um, that our t-shirt campaign is still going on and it is not going on for very long. You have until the 17th of May to purchase your shirts. I think I... Um, That's 10 more days, which will be yeah, less when this airs. That would be like seven days less. when this airs. It's like, it's almost over. <clears throat> we will be able to sell some shirts later. Okay. But... We don't know when. We don't know when. And the price might go up, guys. Yeah. So... <laughs> so if you want to get them now and you want to get them at the lower price, then you're going to have to go to Bonfire. Pick one up today. And yes, Team Bronte shirts are coming. Don't worry. But let's go ahead and thank those who have picked up a Team Austin shirt. So Kirabel, Lauren, Amanda, Jennifer, Sarah Rose, Kira, Tanya, Beth, Geraldine, Emily. Thanks. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. I hope I didn't miss anyone, but, you know, we got another week left of thank yous. Tell, we, tell you who we didn't miss, the sad lad who said... <laughs> <laughs> the sad lad who texted Hannah to say that he had ordered a shirt, but... Hey, babe. He's not on the list. Hey, babe. He's I not on the list. Liar. <laughs> hey, babe. I know. I'm ordering I know your shirt. listen to this show. Yeah. I Whatever. see you. <laughs> <laughs> and let this be a lesson to all men i will discuss you on the show if you if you cross me <laughs> and she died alone absolutely as you should aunt <laughs> peace r.i.p me <laughs> <sighs> all right go to bed good night <laughs> <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs>